Yeah. My, uh, my wife leaned over to me last night during that song. He's like, Tommy's singing this better than Miss America did. So, and he's, he, he's prettier than her too. So, yeah. Yeah, I hope you had your coffee because if you hadn't, that'd be the most annoying song ever if you hadn't had your coffee yet, you know. So, hey, uh, good to be back with you guys. I, uh, I've been in full-fledged men's retreat, women's conference mode, uh, teaching two, two men's retreats in the month of September and then Friday night, this past Friday night, teaching up at the, the women's conference up at our, our West Campus, which went really, really well, I heard. And so I'm back with you guys to, uh, to kick off this brand new series called Church Gone Wild. And as I was thinking about this series, I was thinking about the relative risks involved whenever a parent decides to leave their children home alone, right? And so uh, the level of maturity of your children depends on how well that will, will go. How many of you were one of the, the people in high school who, when your parents left town, you threw a house party and invited everybody? All of us who were wise enough to not do that, thank you for doing that so that we didn't have to ever do that because we loved going to your parties. We just never wanted our house to get wrecked like yours did. And so um, I was thinking about my, my kids. I could probably leave my, my daughter home alone for a month and I would come back to a pretty well-ordered household. There'd just be a lot more animals. She'd probably adopt every dog in the neighborhood, you know, that, that'd be the only difference. But if I were to leave my, my two middle sons alone for more than an hour or so, I'm quite confident I would come back to a burned down house and they would be living naked and afraid style out by the pond. Uh, across. Very, very happy, mind you, but that's probably what would happen. And so uh, as we're jumping in this new series, what we're going to be looking at this weekend is this, this church gone wild. And we're going to be looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote back to this, this group of Christians in this city, this town called Corinth. And he helped start this church and he stayed there for about a year and a half, but then he had to, he had to move on. And as he was away, when he left, man, the church went wild. The kids went crazy, so to speak. And it's not really a big shock because the Corinthian people were starting off in a pretty wild and crazy place. Corinth was a big city. It was a, a port city with lots of people traveling to and from it. And they worshiped all the Greek gods there, kind of the pantheon of gods. Most famously, they were known for their worship of the goddess Aphrodite, to which they had a huge temple dedicated to her that employed over a thousand temple prostitutes. And so people literally came from far and wide to go to Corinth so that they could just party so they could, they could just blow it out so they could live this crazy lifestyle as much like modern day Vegas so much so that in the Greek language they created a new verb which meant to Corinthianize which was the equivalent of sexual immorality that's what they were they were known for so imagine growing up in a town where it was just the norm to watch your your father and every other man that you knew go to the temple on a regular basis to have sex with prostitutes and imagine living in a city where the normal way of dealing with each other was to take advantage of one another lie cheat and steal to get ahead. Imagine growing up in a town where the primary message was basically take care of yourself at all costs. Do what you want to do whenever you want to do it. Imagine living in a town where the mantra was basically this. If it makes you happy, do it. If it doesn't, don't. It's that simple. I took that picture at my favorite coffee shop the other day and then posted it to Twitter with the caption, terrible advice. Because if you really, really think about it, like that sounds really, really nice. If it makes you happy, do it. If it doesn't, don't. It's that simple. But if you actually examined your life and said, if I would have followed that mantra at all moments along the way in my life, imagine how much of a wreck your life would be. Imagine the morons you would have married if you would have followed that advice, right? And some of you are like, I know, that's what I did, right? You know, 
Don't look at anybody right now, all right? Just look straight ahead, all right? Uh, Imagine you would have never gotten out of school because how many days did you feel like getting up and going to school? How many days did it make you happy to go to school? Uh, You wouldn't even have a job right now because it doesn't always make you happy to go to work. It doesn't even make you happy to always feed your children. Your children would starve to death if you followed that, that advice. But yet the great theologian Pharrell says happiness is the truth, right? That's what Tommy just sang for us. I talked to a guy the other day who said, you'll never be able to convince me that I'm not the most important person on the planet. I'm number one. So the way that I live is if I want to do it, I do it. If I don't want to do it, I don't. And that was really the mentality of the city of Corinth. So when Paul goes there, and we're going to look at a little bit of the backstory in the book of Acts chapter 18, when he goes there and he tells people about Jesus, strangely enough, he runs into all kinds of conflict. And when Paul goes to Corinth, I also think Paul is at one of the lowest points of his life because he's been run out of the town of Thessalonica. He goes to Athens, Greece, and he debates with some of the greatest philosophers there, and nobody really listens to him because they love his style, but they're not really interested in the substance of his message. And Prior to that, he had spent time in Philippi where he got beaten up and thrown in jail. And so I think Paul's at a really low point in his life when he shows up in in Corinth. And it's been just a really, really tough run. And it gets even tougher when he gets to Corinth because he starts telling everybody about Jesus. And the Jewish people in town don't really like his message because their perception of the Messiah was that he was going to be a political deliverer, which is not what Jesus did. And all the Greek people in town have no interest in Jesus because they value um, position and, and wealth and status more than anything else and Paul's preaching about a guy who died a criminal's death on a cross and so he didn't have wealth or status or position so they don't want to listen about Jesus and so Paul just kind of hangs in there but he's at a very low point when one night he's sleeping and he has this he has this vision that he gets from God which is a really sweet message from the Lord look at this Acts chapter 18 verse 9 and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people so what God's doing right there is he is basically guaranteeing the results to Paul he's going Paul here's your job just do what I've told you to do keep talking about Jesus I will do the saving I'll do what only I can do. I will do the heavy, the heavy lifting. You just keep on doing what, what I've told you to do. And so Paul hangs in there and he keeps on telling people about Jesus in the city of Corinth. And at some point during his stay, a new proconsul, which is kind of the equivalent of a mayor, comes to town. And his name is Gallio. And one of the primary roles of the proconsul was to sit in the marketplace on this, this seat called the Bema seat, which means the judgment seat, and hear cases all day long, like civil trials, and make judgments all day long people would bring people to court and then the the proconsul would make would make decisions and so uh, all the Jewish people in town all the synagogue leaders and things like that see an opportunity to maybe run Paul out of town so what they do is they drag Paul into the marketplace before Gallio who's sitting on this judgment seat and they make a big complaint about Paul and here's what they say look at verse 13 this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized, hang on to this guy's name, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. In other words, everybody waiting in line to have their case tried is really, really mad at Sosthenes, the leader of of this synagogue 
God for wasting everybody's time by bringing Paul there that day. And what Gallio does actually sets this really great precedent uh, that existed in the Roman world for a little while, which basically said, listen, Rome has no interest in getting involved in your little inter- intramural Jewish debates. You guys do what you want with this whole Jesus guy. We don't, we don't care. Now that flips later on with Nero, who decides that he wants to exterminate all Christians and he wants to murder and run them all out of town. But, that, but for a little while, this provides a little bit of context and time for the gospel to spread and to grow. So Paul stays a while longer and then he heads out to plant more churches in other places. But over the years, Paul keeps getting letters and correspondence being sent to him of these reports about how things are going in Corinth. And the reports are always bad. They're always bad. And so what we have in, in the Bible is these two letters, the books of First and Second Corinthians, written back to the church at Corinth to address their issues. And their issues were really big issues. They were really significant. They were literally a church gone gone wild. I mean, they had major cliques and gossip going on within their church. They had rampant sexual immorality, both gay and straight. They had, they had a guy in the church who gets mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians who's sleeping with his father's wife. They had prostitution. They had all kinds of sexual immorality going on. People were getting drunk in church during communion services, so much so that there was no wine left when a lot of people would get to the table so that they could even take, take communion. They were suing one another, bringing one another to court. Their worship services services were out of control and they were just saying and doing whatever they wanted their marriages were falling apart divorce was rampant they were some of them even still worshiping false gods and going to the temple of Aphrodite and kind of blending uh, Christianity with what a, whatever hip in style religion was present in Corinth during that day it's literally a church gone wild Everybody living by that mantra, if it makes you happy, do it. If it doesn't make you happy, don't. It's that simple. And Paul writes this letter back to them to address these issues. And the word comes back to Paul that a lot of people in town are kind of questioning Paul's legitimacy, saying, you know, Paul, he's really bold uh, when he writes us letters and stuff like that, but he would never say stuff like that to our face. And so Paul is going to bring the thunder in 1 Corinthians. That's what he's going to do. I mean, he, he, is going to, he is going to bring some really hard truth down on this church at Corinth. But in order to understand why he's doing that, Paul gives us both the motivation and the reason for the tone that he's going to have in this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Look, look at this. He says, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed. In other words, his motivation is not to shame anybody today. That's not what he's after. But rather to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many, give me the word, fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. In other words, he's going, you guys got all kinds of Christians in your ear, giving you all kinds of different opinions. Everybody's trying to point you in different directions. What you don't have is a solid spiritual father. That's what you don't have. That's what you're lacking. Now, I think this is really key. This is important for understanding both the tone of this letter and the motivation for this letter. In other words, there comes a time where a good father puts his foot down and just says, enough. Enough is enough. And a good father, a good father comes alongside his children. That's what admonish literally means. And at the same time, points to a better way and helps them walk in that better way and cheers them on as they do it and corrects and disciplines them when they don't. All of those things are in the job description of a good father. And that's a challenging, difficult task to figure out that perfect balance of discipline and encouragement, how to reprimand your kids without crushing them, how to discipline them well without shaming them. And Paul says, listen, I'm up to the task. I am your spiritual father. And he makes this amazingly brave statement. He says, just be imitators of me. Watch me. 
Do what I do, say what I say, follow me, I'll go first, I'll be the leader, I'll, I'll show up and I'll show you what this looks like. So the tone of this letter is going to be incredibly fatherly and the motivation behind this letter is entirely fatherly because a good father at the end of the day wants good for his kids. A good father wants good for his kids. And here's a real key part, and his kids know that. And so that's what Paul's trying to do there in chapter four is just to make sure they know, I want good for you. I want what's best for you. I want you to have a great life. I want you to live this life the way that God intended you to live this life because I love you and I want good for you. So Paul is hearing that the kids are immature. They're going crazy in his absence and he's about to bring some order back to the house. And he does that because he wants something more for them. He wants good for them. Even if that means he has to be really, really fatherly and really, really stern with them. I mean, look look at what he says in verse 18. This is a very fatherly thing to say. Some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul's saying, man, you guys are really, really brave behind a pen and a piece of paper. We'll see how powerful you are face to face. See, one of the most loving things a father can do is intervene in the lives of his children when his children are running off course and headed in the wrong direction. Course correction, discipline is one of the key roles of a father. I mean, how many of us in this room can look back at our lives and go, yeah, that's what was missing in my life was I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a father to come into my life to correct my course and I went off in all kinds of directions. See, a father, when he intervenes in the lives of his kids when they're headed in the wrong direction, has the ability to save his children a lot of pain and suffering if they'll follow his, his wisdom. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. And he's willing to bring the rod of discipline if he has to because he loves his kids. So one of the, the questions that you probably need to wrestle with as we dive into this series is simply this. Are you ready to hear some really tough stuff in this series? We're going to get into some really hard, really heavy, really relational things in this series. And this is going to come from a fatherly perspective. And some of us are not so good at receiving fatherly wisdom because we're, we never really got much of that. And so we become resentful towards it. Or some of us, maybe we're craving it. And so this will be what you've been looking for for a long, long time. But you need to ask yourself, are you prepared to hear some really, really hard truth in this series? So that's the framework. That's the tone. So now we're prepared to go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So the guy who got beat down in the marketplace that day, who was the ruler of the synagogue, has now become a Christian. That's kind of cool. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul's first word is grace. He keeps going. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, this is the key verse, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is, give me the word, faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord Paul wants to make really really clear before he gets into anything else that this is all about grace he wants to make sure that we all understand we're all on the same page that it is Jesus's work in us and through us that changes us and transforms us before we ever before Paul ever gets into stop doing this and start doing that before he ever starts giving us a list of things to do and not to do he wants to establish one thing grace that it is Jesus who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day 
day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He'll finish what he started in you. So don't forget that. The first word is grace. He wants to establish that before he brings this really, really hard truth that now in verse 10 he's going to start to dive into. So look at this, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, when he uses that word division, that's not referring to some minor argument. Uh, The word division literally means to be torn apart. Uh, It's where we get our word schism from. It means that the church is literally being torn apart. That's what he sees happening in in Corinth and it's being torn apart based on these little cliques and clubs and allegiances that are being developed inside the church and he refers to it in verse 11 look at this for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you my brothers what I mean is that each one of you says things like this well I follow Paul or I follow Paulus or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ so what they're doing is they're all putting on their uniforms a lot of you are wearing your jersey today with somebody else's name on the back and that's what people naturally do we we want to represent a team we want to represent a person and what he's saying is that there's people within the church who are there gravitating towards certain personality types amongst the teachers and preachers in Christianity during that time some of them are gravitating towards this guy named Apollos who was this young very persuasive stylish preacher who early on in his career lacked a lot of substance and needed some correction some of them are saying no we're on Peter's team because that's what Cephas is that's what Cephas is that's the Aramaic of Peter so they're like we're, we're with the OG the original you know the Apostle Peter we're with him and then then there's people going no we're with Paul and then there's people who are playing the ultimate spiritual card and going we're just on Jesus's team you know all that kind of thing is going on and that's what people naturally do is we have this tendency to value style over substance and what Paul's going to boil this down to is to say listen a mature follower of Jesus values substance over style a mature follower of Jesus doesn't show up to church to hear a person a mature follower of Jesus shows up to to meet Jesus that, that, that's what he's going to boil this down to. Look at, look at verse 13. He gets a little sarcastic here, which I totally dig. Paul has a spiritual gift of sarcasm. He says, is Christ divided? And then he says this, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, Paul's going, you guys, you jokers, I, I didn't die for you. I didn't save you. This has never been about me. He's going, you knuckleheads, get this through your brain. Jesus did all that for you. Jesus saved you. Jesus is, don't act like me and Apollos and and Peter are all on a different team. We're all on the same team. It's called Team Jesus. You want to wear a jersey, wear the one with Jesus on the back. But Corinth was this town that was really into big name philosophers and famous people who could speak with serious eloquence. And so they brought that mentality into the church and they can't really let go of that. And so they had this tendency to kind of play this game where they pick their favorite preacher and they they pick teams and divided the church based on that but Paul wants to remind them of something else look at verse 17 for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power so this is a very interesting thing Paul is saying right here he's basically saying this if he would have showed up in town and just kind of said, all right, I'll play your game. I'll deliver these, these, these sermons, these speeches with great eloquence and wisdom. I'll use all the form of your modern day debaters and all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll be the ultimate in style. If he would have played that game, if he would have pandered to that, he's saying, I would have emptied the cross of its power. Because this culture that he was walking into just valued the form of debate, but had absolutely no concern for the actual truth being argued. 
Like, did you ever take a speech class or a debate class where you were assigned to argue something that you didn't actually believe in? And if you were really good at it, you could still win the debate even though you weren't actually compelled by what you were arguing for because you were just a good arguer. Some of us are just really good arguers. And that's what Paul is saying is I wasn't out to be a really good arguer. I wasn't out to be a really good debater. I wasn't out to to score points or draw fanfare. He wasn't out to win any popularity contests. Paul's concern was always substance over style. So the question becomes, well, what was that substance? What was the substance of your message, Paul? He makes it really, really clear. The cross. The cross. And what Jesus did on the cross and the power behind that, he he continues on in verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, this beautiful, amazing grace message that Jesus came was fully God, fully man, died on the cross on behalf of our sins, did for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we could be reconnected back to God. Paul says, is foolishness to those who are, in his words, perishing. I don't know if you've come across this, but I've come across this in my life. There are folks out there who the very sound of grace is laughable to them. It's ridiculous. It's foolish. It's stupid. It's ludicrous. It's something they look at and they go, that is just dumb. At our men's retreats last month, we really looked at Proverbs 1-7, which says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, yet fools despise wisdom and instruction. That word fear means literally trusting someone's intentions towards you. In other words, literally trusting God's intentions as a good father is the first step on the path to wisdom. The flip side of that is this, fools actually look at wisdom and call it foolish. They see the world upside down. You know what that is? That's, that's heartbreaking. For someone to see such a good thing, such a beautiful thing, and to call it dumb, to call it foolish, to call grace ridiculous. See, I I don't know about you, I got friends who aren't followers of Jesus who their response to grace so far is that's just, that's absurd. That's dumb. How could you believe in that? How How could you think that's a real thing? They think the message of the cross is foolish. And it's precisely this laughable, ludicrous message of the cross that God is going to use to humble, to shut up, and to make sit down those who put their value and hope in human argumentation and wisdom. Look at what Paul says next. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, Paul's interest is ultimately not in presenting finely tuned, stylish arguments and debates. So he's saying to this church, if you're looking to divide up God's church based on all of those things, then just know one thing, you are not aligned with the purposes of Jesus. If you're going to tear apart the church based on human leaders and preferences and style, he's saying you're, you're immature, you're a bunch of babies and you're missing the point. And that's what he goes on to say in chapter three is he really indicts this church when he calls them a bunch of babies. Look at this. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in Christ I fed you with milk not solid food for you were not ready for it and even now you're not ready for you are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way for when someone says I follow Paul another says I follow Apollos are you not being merely human what then is Apollos what is Paul we're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, he's going, you bunch of babies, you need to grow up. 
Quit dividing the church based on silly things like who your favorite preacher is. There are way more important things, namely Jesus. Jesus is the point of this whole thing. Jesus is the one who changes you. Not Paul, not Apollos. But yet they're holding on to these things that the culture around them valued so highly. And that's this idea that everyone, in order to gain their own personal identity and value, had to find that in somebody else. Somebody who had some sort of skill or talent, somebody who was famous, somebody who was well-known, whatever that was. In a city that loved to listen to famous people argue and debate and prove how wise they were, the Christians in the church in Corinth couldn't let go of that, and so they adopted this celebrity worship mentality within their church. And they brought it with them, and it was tearing the church apart. Now, why would that happen? Well, it's, it's kind of human nature. Because whenever we perceive that we are not enough, which at some point in our life we come across this harsh truth that we're just inadequate, we're not enough, we're not what we hope to be, we're not what we want to be, and we can't live up to even our own standards, much less anybody else's, or if there was a God out there, we couldn't live up to his. And so anytime we start to believe that we're not enough, what we do is we try to become enough by association with someone or something. The other day I was standing in line at the grocery store and I listened to this long, lengthy, elaborate conversation about the Kardashian family. It's like, oh, for crying out loud, for the love of my Lord. Do you know, do you know this much about your own family? Because if you know more about the Kardashians than your own kids, that's a red flag, right? That's a, that's a red flag. So, so but that, here's the problem. If you perceive that you're not enough, you may try to become enough through all kinds of different ways. For some of us, it, it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. It, you may go get a trophy wife to have on your arm. So you go to the world. Am I enough now as long as I have, have her on my arm? If you perceive that you're not enough, you may try to become enough by becoming the proverbial super mom and present a perfect household to the world to prove, am I enough now for everybody? You might become obsessed with celebrities and people you envy and find your identity and knowing a lot about them even though you don't know them. If you're not enough, you may try to become enough by living vicariously through your children's performance in the classroom or their performance on a field. If you think you're not enough, here's what you might do. You might dress in a way that makes you feel like you now are or you might dress in a way that's reflective of what little value you think you have. If you're not enough, you may try to become enough through your bank account and the list goes on and on and here's the really scary side of feeling like you're not enough if all that wasn't scary enough sometimes what we do is we try to prove we're enough by setting ourselves up as better than other people because that makes us feel better about ourselves so what Paul would summarize all that is is he would go all that is the wisdom of this world all that is the way that this world prescribes to to operate all of that is the approach of this world whether it was Corinth 2,000 years ago or Denver today the idea is push push other people down so that you can get ahead and then align yourself with somebody who will serve your purposes and separate yourself from people who don't right So Paul is writing back to a bunch of immature baby Christians who are obsessed with proving that they are somebody, even if they have to gain that by aligning with somebody else. And he basically just goes, seriously? Really? This is the game that we're going to play within the church? I mean, look at what he says in verse 26. He's going, do you remember who you were before you met Jesus? Look at this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So let Let me try to say this as concisely and clearly as possible. What Paul is saying is this. Based on the world's standards, most of you, before you met Jesus, 
and consider, the world considered you absolutely irrelevant, inconsequential, and worthless. But God, two of the most beautiful words put together in the Bible, but God chose you. And therein lies your value. Therein lies your identity. You are gods. And yet you want to wear the Team Apollos jersey? You want to wear the Team Paul jersey? How lame is that? Look, look at what he says in verse, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's your team. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let, no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, you weren't changed by anybody but Jesus. You aren't being changed by anybody but Jesus. And nobody else paid the price for your sins but Jesus. So if you're going to boast, man, boast and brag in who Jesus is and what he's done. And he's saying, if everybody will just adopt that mentality, if everybody will get on the same page and on the same team, then the church won't be getting ripped apart. See, when you start to remember who you were apart from Jesus, you'll be re-amazed by grace. Something really weird and scary happens to us Christians is that we lose touch with the desperation we had before we met Jesus, and grace ceases to be amazing to us. And so we come into a church, or we sing songs, or we hear somebody talk about grace, and that word grace alone used to just kind of bring tears to your eyes and, and it was a really, really magnificent, huge, powerful truth. But the problem is as we become better Christians, this really subtle thing starts to happen where we start to believe that grace isn't what sustains us, it's our performance that does. And it's really subtle but it creeps in and it's, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's always grace, it's always grace that sustains us. So when you remember who you were apart from Jesus, all of a sudden you're set free and you no longer have to prove yourself through any false temporary measures of proving your worth and you certainly don't have to look down at other sinners saved by grace and throw stones at them because you realize, man, we're all, apart from Jesus, just sinful, broken, messed up people and any change or improvement in our lives is first attributed to his work in us and through us so we have nothing to boast about but Jesus and that's such a liberating thing when you no longer have anything to prove. See, that's the model that Paul gave them when he came to Corinth. I mean, let's be honest, Paul was a genius. He was the smartest guy in the room, no matter what room he was standing in. If he wanted to come and win all the arguments in, in Corinth, he could have. If he wanted to come into town and just prove how smart he was, he, he could have done that. But he was interested in something much deeper than winning arguments. He was after people. And winning arguments doesn't transform people. So, this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is a low point in his life. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's going, listen, I decided... Not to try to flaunt or show off how smart I was when I came to town. I decided to make one thing abundantly clear. Jesus Christ and him crucified on a day in history. This is what Jesus did for you. You want to have arguments about all this other stuff? Let's boil it all down to this one thing. On a day in history, Jesus died on the cross as punishment for your sins and he rose from the grave. Now, do you believe that? Do you put your faith in that? Do you put your trust in him or not? And if so... If so, there is no room for division in the church over all these silly little debates. Because here's the thing. This is what we're going to get to next week. People are important. 
Lost and broken people are important. And Paul is honestly saying to these folks in his church in Corinth, your immaturity and your inability to put aside your childish ways is getting in the way of people hearing the most important message in the world, the message of the cross. Listen, we are never responsible for saving anyone, but we sure can get in the way. We sure can get in the way, which we will talk more about next week. But before we even get to other people, I think we need to talk about some in-house stuff. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today, please just listen in because this, the rest of this is going to be for Christians in the room. See, the church at Corinth was really, really small by all accounts. Five years later, when Paul writes this letter back to them, there's probably only about 50 people or so within the church, and that church was located in a major metropolitan city. So why is it that they were still so small? Why hadn't they grown? Well, could it be that they were so busy fighting with each other that they couldn't even look up to reach out to other people? Uh, could it be that because they had such a lack of concern for one another within the church that there's no way they would ever have concern for people outside of the church? And let's be honest, who would want to join them anyway? Who would want to join a church like that anyway? I mean, one of Paul's major indictments of the Corinthian church was that their behavior was so bad, it made all the pagan Corinthians like be shocked. All the, all the Corinthians in town looked at this little church and like, man, you guys are crazy. You guys really know how to party. You're doing stuff we don't even dream about doing. And he's going, that's, that's ridiculous. They were divided. They were pushing and shoving to the proverbial front of the line. They're sleeping with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They were taking each other to court. They were fighting, berating, putting one another down. They were getting drunk all the time. Their worship services were a chaotic mess that nobody could benefit from. A lot of them were still worshiping idols, and the list goes on and on and on. So why would anyone want to be a part of that? So let me land, land here, all right? After doing two weekends of of men's retreats and then then Friday night teaching at the women's conference and kind of listening to men and women in this church and hearing their stories and all that kind of stuff they it's been a great month I think in the life of our church I think we got to launch out of this into some new territory and one of the things I think that we need to just say plainly is this we need to get on the same page folks we need to get on the same page we have to realize we are on the same team and we need to quit throwing stones at one another like siblings who think the other one's the problem or the other one's the enemy we have a common enemy and guess what it's not each other we have an enemy it's just nobody in this room see this this church in Corinth man their struggle was with arrogance and pride amongst Christians Everyone thought they were the most important person in the room and no one would help or love or serve one another. No one would put the needs of others ahead of their own. So, so let me just say some things that are going to, this is going to be hard truth, all right? So this is why I said you got to kind of examine your heart and be, be honest. Are you ready to receive this kind of truth or not? And some of you aren't and that's okay. Some of you are and I hope this is helpful. But let me address a few different groups of people in the room. Let me talk to single people in the room. Say this as plainly as possible. You need to understand something. It's not the church's job to find you a husband or a wife. We are not match.com. We're not eHarmony. You know, you know what your job is? To become the type of follower of Jesus that God would be a good father to give to another one of his kids. That's your job, so grow up. Married women in the room, let me, let me talk to you for a second. Your husband's not the enemy. I know it feels like he is some days. He's not. Listen, all this man stuff that we've been doing around here for so long, we are not pandering to your husband. We're not trying to just be a manly church or whatever. We are challenging your husband with reckless abandon to bear responsibility, to provide and to protect, to lead with grace and to follow with truth, to recapture biblical manhood at its best. It's a heavy responsibility that God has given your husband and we are trying to help and encourage and challenge all at the same time and we are not going to stop. And if you think putting the brakes on that would do anything but harm women, you need to grow up. Let me talk to married men in the room. Yeah, a few people. Yeah, all right. 
The rest are like, what's his email address? All right. <laughs> Let me talk to the married men in the room. Your wife is not the enemy. I've had some heavy conversations over this past month. Your, your wife is not the enemy. Listen, gentlemen, loving, serving, protecting, providing, and being willing to lay down your life for her and putting her needs before your own does not come with a disclaimer, an out clause, a prenuptial agreement. It is a covenant before the sovereign God of the universe meant to be permanent despite her attitude, behavior, or her sinful actions. Grow up, men. Your children, your children are not the enemy. I know it feels like they are Satan incarnate on some days that end in Y. I know, all right? They're not the enemy. We're on the same team. Children, your parents are not the enemy. They're not. You think you're so easy to raise? You're not. (laughs) Grow up. Listen, no one sitting in this room is your enemy. Not your ex-husband in the balcony, not your ex-girlfriend in the back, not your stepdad sitting two seats down, not the enemy. But as long as we keep being tricked into thinking that someone in this room is the enemy, our church community will be limited in its ability to reach lost and broken people because we can't keep our own house in order. This church will never be more healthy than the hearts of the people in this room. This church will never be more healthy than the marriages in this room, than the families represented in this room that make it up. So here's, here's what I want to leave you with thinking about before next week and I said this at the men's retreats and I said this at the the women's conference on Friday night your intentions don't mean anything stop immaturely giving that 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 trump card out there going well I intended I always wanted that my heart in my heart I wanted to be listen how many of you how many of you in this room had a conversation with one of your parents at some point in your life where they looked at you and went well I always intended to be there for you and you look back and went I don't care what you intended to do you weren't there intentions don't mean anything what you do is what matters Andy Stanley says it really well direction not intention determines your destination in other words what you are actually doing the steps you are actually taking taking will determine the outcomes of your life I'm not talking about heaven and hell That is determined solely based on what Jesus did for you. It has nothing to do with what you could ever try to do for yourself. What I am talking about is whether you decide to bring hell to earth or not. That is determined by what you do. So here's a few few more questions. If you keep on doing what you're doing, where's that going to end up? I mean, this is reverse engineering. We've been down this path. What's the target? What's the bullseye? Where do you want life to go? And what are you doing right now? Not tomorrow, not next week, right now that will get you there in that direction what small adjustments need to be made now or major adjustments need to be made now so that you can hit the bullseye that you're aiming for in your life so here's some more questions who do you need to reconcile with who do you need to apologize to who do you need to ask forgiveness from or give forgiveness to so that we can actually turn and shoulder to shoulder face the real enemy instead of fighting and dividing amongst one another And I know, man, that is all overwhelming and scary and it feels impossible. And I've watched all weekend as people have folded their arms and burned holes through me with their eyes. I know all that sounds just, just too much. I'll just quote Jesus to you. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If it were just up to us to fix ourselves and fix our relationships and fix all this and to make the church not a mess and all that kind of thing, man, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. But with God, 
all things are possible. So all week long, I've been, I've been reading Psalm 46 pretty much every day this, this week. And I, I won't read it all to you. i just read you a couple of my favorite parts. It says this. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, And famously, I love this line, be still and know that I am God, which has a flip side to it. You know what it is? It's a beautiful truth. Be still and know that you're not God. I'm not God. You're not God. And guess what? That's really good news. It's really good news. It's good news that he has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. So now you can do what you never thought you would have the strength, the ability, or the power to do. Let's ask him for help. God, come before you and uh, we need you. We need your help. We're a mess most of the time and the rest of the time we're just not admitting that we are. Uh, God, we, we can't live up to your standards. We fall short all the time. And that's why we're so thankful for your grace and we're so thankful for your mercy. But God, sometimes we try to rely on your grace and mercy to get us out of hell and get us into heaven, but we forget to rely on your grace and mercy every day for all of life in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our fears, in the midst of all the things that just weigh us down and make us heavy burden. God, I pray that you'll You'll lighten our burden today through your grace and through your mercy and that we can have confidence that you want good for us as a good father. And we can know this because on a day in history, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross and raise him from the dead so that we could know your name, so that we could walk in an intimate relationship with you. God, you're a good God. Help us to believe that and know that at the core of our being. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and worship.